All right, folks, welcome to this episode of the Jackson Lucas Impact Real Estate Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Chris Papa, and we have the other host, Lisa Flicker. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Chris. Happy How are you doing today? Oh, maybe maybe I got COVID, maybe I don't. We'll see. The home test said no, but I don't believe it because it said yes before and I didn't have it. So I'm going to get officially tested soon. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. Looking at looking at enjoying a Labor Day weekend coming up. Oh, yeah, me too. So we're starting our September secondaries month, real estate secondaries, which is a space I've we've been involved in for a few years. And we're having a webinar on the end of the month. Please check out our LinkedIn um, for the Jackson Lucas uh, LinkedIn page for more information on that. But today we met with Alex Abrams. Alex is a partner at Stepstone Group. He is based in Florida. They are all over the world. Um, And he works in their real estate group doing a lot of different things. And he's a great guy. And he's going to be one of our panelists on the secondary webinar. So it was a great talking to him and getting to know him personally and his story a little better. What did you think, Lise? I really enjoyed meeting him. You know, he's a really good, interesting person, but I'm always fascinated by people who start out as lawyers and are able to successfully transition to the business side. And I just really enjoyed listening to how he did that. Yeah. Liked him a lot. You could tell why he's successful. He's, he's, he's very well-spoken, much more than my COVID brain is today. So with that, I'm going to k- stop talking because if I do keep doing it, I'm going to forget what words mean. So uh, thank you all for listening. And as always, please rate and review the podcast and feel free to pass along the link to any of your friends. And if you have any questions or comments, please shoot them over. And our website is jacksonlucas.com. Hope to hear from you soon. Bye. Well, Alex, thanks for joining us today. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. How's Florida? Are you guys in the middle of any hurricanes right now? Uh, right now, we are between hurricanes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I used to live down in Florida, and I just remember those. that was the equivalent of the snow days for the kids. At least they got some surprise, like, the days, school's closed, hurricane. That That's correct, although school's just started, so it's the worst nightmare to then have oh yeah to have your kids home as they just get started with school for a hurricane but so far uh, so good down here in south florida we missed the hurricane that hit north florida uh this past week but yeah we just try to get through until october uh when it starts to get nicer down here nice where uh how have you have you been in florida a long time so i moved to florida in 2020 pandemic nice. move uh, my wife's from South Florida originally. We live in Boca Raton, where she grew up. Uh, so it's uh, it's been a really interesting three years to see hyper growth of a region. South Florida is is completely on fire from Miami all the way up to North Palm Beach County. Um, the amount of people moving here, uh, the the type of people moving here, the the business flywheel that's a, that's been created because of the people moving here, and it's really. Um, opened up South Florida to a totally different type of professional, right. uh, just given the flexibility of, of work from home and sort of the movement of uh, a number of investment management firms down in South Florida. We did a South Florida webinar. We did two, actually. So we, we were covering that. But Lisa, didn't you live, live in Boca? I did. I lived in... Um, so my my most happiest time of my life, I lived in the Pink Tower 
So my husband was with Blackstone and they were, were redeveloping before they sold it to MSD. And we lived up there and it was, it was pretty wonderful. So Alex, you are with Stepstone, Stepstone yes. Group. Um, one of, I've known some members of Stepstone Group for a long time. Can you tell us about uh, Stepstone, what you do sure. there, uh, your role, all that, all that stuff? Sure. So, so Stepstone Group, uh, which is a publicly traded company, is a private markets investor and advisor. We cover all the private markets, private equity, real estate infrastructure, and private debt. And our, our sort of way we see ourselves in the market is we provide capital to managers uh, through primary investments, co-investments, secondaries, including LP secondaries and GP led secondaries. And um, we've, you know, the business has grown quite substantially. The Stepson Group was founded in, in 2007, uh, Stepson Real Estate uh, 2014. Uh, and we've added since a, a uh, infrastructure private debt business, and most recently added a, 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 a business called Greenspring to the Stepstone platform. Mm. So we're almost a thousand employees now globally. Wow. Um, so, so quite the breadth and, and uh, just one of the most active investors and advisors in the private market space. Yeah, because they started initially out of La Jolla, right? Yeah, that's right. And uh, built the business, uh, you know, over, over the years, sort of incrementally adding teams, uh, which has been great for the culture of the business. It's, it, you know, it, uh, besides for the sort of latest acquisition of Greenspring, which which was a number of folks, uh, it was typically bringing on you know somewhere between ten to twenty in our case, and real estate even smaller than that teams, and then growing from there. So there's a real ingrained culture at Stepstone that um, that's really important, and I think it's, it's sort of uh, why the business has continued to be successful, and also sort of retained a lot of senior talent. Uh, we just don't lose a lot of senior people. I think people really like working at Stepstone. Yeah. Um, and and the company's just been on a on a significant growth trajectory ever ever since you know I joined and, and before that as well. Yeah, I think I mean what? maybe it's sorry one second, Lisa. Well, there, I think it's maybe that culture that comes out of Southern California, right? It's like it's not. It's a. That's what I was <laughs> going to ask. What's the secret sauce to the culture? You, you know. Southern California. I mean, it's San Diego, baby. It's not even Southern California. Um, yeah. You know, there's. I didn't know much about San Diego before joining. Before joining Steps, I don't really spent didn't spend much time out there. But that that um, kind of yes, that laid back California culture, which I think really is uh, epitomized by San Diego of all the major metropolitan right. areas of, of California. Um, with that, you know, perfect weather every single day, and and um, sort of, you know, just working hard, but also really enjoying life. That's a big part of our uh, platform. I think we also really adapted well to COVID. We were already set up as somewhat of a distributed business with so many offices globally. Um, you know, we were probably six or 700 folks when COVID broke and we were seamless in our sort of switch over to work from home. Uh, we were very used to interacting with each other via technology before COVID broke. So having to communicate, you know, via teams was honestly easier because then the rest of the world adopted teams and it was kind of similar to the way we are already interacting. And it just works well for the private markets, which are global and to cover so many different areas. So, you know, I think our advantage as a firm is having people on the ground in most places, not always in all 
um, all the different types of, of private markets investing, but always having access to local resources uh, wherever there's an investable asset uh, and, and on an institutional basis is really helpful. Yeah, my first exposure to StepStone was um, a good buddy of mine was used to work with Brendan McDonald over at Liquid Realty mm-hmm. back in 07 or whatever that was. Yeah. And so they they were friends. They worked. He was a head of accounting or finance or something there. And uh, then I met Brendan and then they formed, I guess he met Jeff. I don't, I don't know the iteration. They went to Clairview. Um, and then Clairview rolled into Stepstone and I was like, what, who are these guys? And then all of a sudden, like, I realized that there's huge, um, how are these people out of San Diego so big? Um, <laughs> and I know, I know, I know Brendan is a, I mean, I, I really like him as a person, uh, a great guy. So can you kind of give us the, the, the history of Stepstone, the real estate side and kind of how you got involved? Were you involved sure. with Clairview? Sure. So, so, um, I was not involved with Clairview. Uh, so, so um, Jeff, uh, Jeff Giller, Brennan McDonald, Josh Cleveland, uh, sort of the founding principles of the business. They formed Clairview, I believe, 2010, and um, uh, rolled and kind of merged their business into Stepstone and became Stepstone Real Estate in 2014. Um, I, it's just kind of a funny story in why you kind of join a group and, and, and link up with people. Um, I had known of Brendan and Jeff um, for a number of years and, and somewhat of Josh as well. But Brendan and Jeff, I was a practice, I started my career as a practicing attorney in the real estate investment management and fund formation space. Uh, and I was at Goodwin Proctor in New York City. Uh, and one of our clients received a term sheet from Jeff and Brendan when they were at Liquid. And, um, you know, oh, I just yeah. thought, oh, that's a really interesting business that they've got going on providing, uh, you know, GP or liquidity to to GPs or funds, especially this is during the financial crisis. And, uh, then started to, you know, I just, just sort of noted it. And then, um, my next stop in my career, I was at, um, Credit Suisse and the customized fund investment group. And, um, we, we, you know, met with a lot of managers and, and Jeff Giller came in and, and met with us. Uh, at the time, sort of pitching uh, one of the Clearview products um, at at Credit Suisse, we had um, that was you know we were the the primaries business, and then Strategic Partners that was then acquired by Blackstone was the secondaries business. So the strategy fell somewhat you know somewhat not really competitive, but just too close to the line for us to to um, to move forward with. But we stayed in touch and. Uh, um, you know, th- again, thought what he was doing is interesting. Uh, and then the, 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 the final touch point um, was uh, with Dave Subash, who um, is a sort of founding partner of Stepstone Real Estate. And he and I were uh, uh, quite close uh, industry colleagues. And I joined Stepstone Real Estate in 20, um, 2016, January 2016, uh, as they were looking for really a head of business development. And that was sort of my initial entree into the business. And that was through Dave. Um, you know, I think I uh, either saw a post about it or heard about it through Dave or through LinkedIn or something like that. And we got lunch and uh, the rest is history. That was the kind of beginning of joining joining these guys and, and have been working with them now for eight years. That's amazing. And so for people who are listening, who are thinking about you know, maybe they're in law school and they're huh. trying to kind of 
<laughs> find their way. And I, I always speak to a lot of what I call recovering attorneys who are hoping to move beyond that. Do you have any advice as to how to kind of break uh, out? As you can imagine, I've answered that question before. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I do. Um, I think the challenge for folks who are to go to law that typically go to law school, and I went to law school straight, uh, straight from college, so kind of just a straight path. Um, and really, you're used to that path and sort of being guided by what is expected of you in terms of career progression. So you end up going to law school, you interview, you get a job at a firm, you look at the people at the firm who've been there longer, you kind of replicate them. And it really isn't until you have a number of years experience that you kind of say, okay, well, I've now, now find myself, um, with a, with a fair amount of, you know, entry level knowledge on how to be a lawyer. Do I want to do this for the rest of my life? And I, and I decided I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life. That was sort of my analysis, even though I was really a great firm at Goodwin Proctor, probably, um, one of the best, uh, law firms to practice at. And um, I had a bunch of people who I knew and knew I was at Goodwin when I when I left said, Why, why'd you leave Goodwin? I said, I just didn't want to be a lawyer long term. Um, they a lot of people say, and I think it's true that you get a good training going to law school. I think you get a okay training at law school from a thinking perspective, but you get a great training at a law firm and how to be precise. Because the demands of a lawyer Transa- transactional lawyers we're talking about typically litigators are are like want to be lawyers forever but the the corporate lawyers the um the the level of precision that's required to execute at such a high level is 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 extreme um and it's <laughs> on the law firm and thus the junior associate who's doing the the be, you know the beginning work of making sure everything is correct so it gives you such a high bar to for execution you, you're just used to executing at a very high level everyone around you is it's very intense and they want to execute a very high level but you get trained on how to think carefully thoughtfully logically um and then the biggest challenge about being a junior associate is you're so stuck in the weeds or you have to make sure this provision matches that provision and all this stuff that your job isn't to see the big picture. And what I think I realize is I, I'm actually pretty good at seeing the big picture and I'm pretty good with clients. So this is great, but I want to take what I learned and, and move on from it. Now, the biggest challenge about being a lawyer is you're typically trained, you know, you're, you haven't had kind of a banking training, so you're not a financial analyst. So what's your other skill set that you're going to bring to a firm? So for me, um, as a junior associate, I got a lot of common commendations about my interactions with clients. Clients would interact with me and think I was a partner, and I wasn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so my, my knowledge level was still pretty much at a, you know, whatever, mid-level associate. I was, I was no, not, not when I was junior, but I could speak well enough and, and get a lot of confidence in my clients and so I saw that and I said, okay, how do I leverage that into something that I really want to do? And I, what I really enjoy doing is speaking with people, thinking strategically, execution, I can do all those things. But really what gets me excited every day is, is speaking with people, engaging with people. And that's really why I moved into business development, which, is, which was my kind of next role at, um, uh, at Credit Suisse, which then became uh, GCM Grosvenor and then 
uh, on a step stone. So that, you know, the path I think for folks who are lawyers is you have to get comfortable that there's going to be a level of risk in your career progression. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean take a risk on whatever uh, company you move to, but you don't outside, you know, being a lawyer is there's, there's like a perceived guarantee of, okay, if I do X, then Y, and that's just not the case in, you know, other parts of finance, which is, you know, where, where many corporate lawyers kind of see their, their forward path. You gave me, I just had a, a flashback, uh, not a good flashback. And I felt sick all over my body because I was a corporate uh, paralegal at one of those big law firms in Manhattan. And man, okay. the level of detail of reading those documents and put it, it was just like, oh my, my God, I could, it was not, I, I've well, never I, experienced anything like that in my life. It's crazy. I will, I will give you a good anecdote. Um, I was just talking with my wife before this podcast, whether I should give this anecdote, but it's, it's quite, it's quite good for what you just said is you're thrown into the fire often on these deals. And I believe I was a junior associate. I can't, I was at a couple of firms. I can't remember which firm this was at, but, um, there was a requirement to put together kind of a number of, um, uh, entity documents, like very, like it was like a portfolio deal. And there was like a lot of entity documents. I didn't know what an entity document was. (laughs) (laughs) It was such a minor, it was a form or something, but like, you're just swimming in so much, you know, so much to do. And, um, I was tasked with it and it stressed me out so much. Like I didn't, I didn't eat for a, a week. I couldn't eat. I'm so nervous. Uh, and I remember that feeling. And, you know, when I speak to um, junior people now and they kind of want career advice, um, you kind of have to go through some of those challenges before you have real success. Because I think, at least in finance, everyone who works in finance at a high level has done that in some some shape or form their career. And it's part of what it means to be a senior person in finance to have you know, kind of gone through some sort of very tough, sloggy, stressful situations as a junior person, and you just build up character. And then you kind of have those that shared camaraderie when you get to the mid-level and senior senior level. Um, it's very different now, I understand, than 20 years ago or so when I was coming out of college, where the level of transparency and people think they under, can understand things and move, you know, from step A to step Z, you know, without going through the rest of the alphabet, because they kind of know what's going on. But it's actually physically experiencing that and testing yourself. um, That kind of makes you better down the road, because you're going to continue to face challenges, but you're going to then be the leader that's going to have to make decisions. And without having gone through some of those challenges as a junior person, it's really tough. So when people say, Oh, you know what, you know, I went to law school, I don't love being a lawyer. It's like, get get that experience for a number of years um, because it really helps you. But don't necessarily say, okay, well, I've there's a sunk cost. I've been at a law firm for five years. I got to keep going. I got to make partner. That's the negative because that's the inclination because it's easy. Uh, there's definitely a period when you, when you have enough that you can do something else and, you, and it's time to break out. But if you stay too long, you know, life yeah. can get in the way. So um, I think it's an important balance. And it gets hard because you get used to the lifestyle. And I mean, obviously, the good and the bad of the lifestyle, the good being the money, the bad being the stress. But I do think that for those people who are kind of five, three, four, five years in, 
moving on and just kind of maybe taking a little bit of a step back to to go forward is is very valuable. Yeah, and 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 just getting comfortable with the unknown, taking a role that you know I'm, I I remember there were a couple of partners that um, I always was asking that that some of the partners themselves came and went you know within being a partner and then went back went to business street went to industry didn't work out came back to be a partner so that happens a lot um right. and trying to understand what does that mean because you know we're we're you know if you go to law school and you you're a lawyer you're kind of a type a control freak so <laughs> you're not comfortable with the unknown <laughs> um so so, so what was uh, so what does business development mean when you're when you made that transition what does what sure. does that look like what skill set like you said you're good at a good talker, but there's a lot of good talkers out there. There's uh, a lot of good talkers. Um, you know, I think that's the advantage uh, that that I was able to bring to the table. So, so I first transitioned. Uh, if if you want to kind of understand specifically, being a lawyer, um, the opportunity to join Credit Suisse actually came from a uh, former um, mid level associate who I reported to in my first firm. Um, and he and I stayed friendly and we were like having a drink and he had gone over to Credit Suisse in the CFIG business and uh, was actually moving from New York to LA and he needed to bring in effectively like a VP level person to oversee what I'd call business development support. So it was um, overseeing a junior team of our RFP writers and, and presentation makers, mm-hmm. um, but doing the quality control on responses and, you know, kind of being a um, quality control on track records. You know, there's a lot of we, the, the business, the CFIC business uh, spent a lot of strategies. Uh, we were doing customized accounts. So there were a lot of, you know, different types of track records that were being sent out for specific clients. And so there was a level of, um, I added just added a lot of value because again, I could do um, I could think strategically, I could think about selling, but I was bringing uh, the legal background to reviewing and making sure what we were saying was appropriate. Um, and sort of, I, I spent five years with that business, really learning a lot about um, what it takes to sell and how it takes to what it takes to present, and learning investments because I was I had a legal background, so it was a really interesting place to be as a lawyer, which is this. Um, you know, fund of funds, co-investment, secondaries, where you're looking actually at the managers themselves who are then managing the investments. And obviously we have a lot of folks on our team, um, uh, had a lot of folks on our team at CFIG um, that had direct investment experience, but you kind of marry direct investment experience with the ability to analyze people and what they do and how they run their business because you're always you're investing alongside uh, folks. And then when you overlay the legal aspect of the, of my background, it was just very helpful um, to to sort of understand what we were doing, what needed to be done, and 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 then I think the last part about it is legal for non lawyers. Legal, the word legal and anything legal freaks people out. They think oh, I'm going to get sued, or I don't know this, or I'm going to get in trouble. And when you're a lawyer, that's the last you know you understand what you're doing, um, and bringing that, you know, you can kind of get people comfortable and it moves things along and working with compliance and they, they feel more comfortable with you because they know you're not going to be out there on the risk spectrum. And, and I think the most interesting thing as a lawyer that you realize from being a junior lawyer to leaving law and going into business development and eventually, eventually into investing is a lot of law is just risk management, right? So Mm -hmm. a lot of the law 
is is set up so that you know you you're you're trying to manage your own you know something can be um, there's certain things that are completely not allowed, but a lot of other things have risk associated with them. And investment professionals are paid to take a certain amount of risk, and lawyers are often paid to reduce that risk. Right. Yeah. Um, but being someone, an investment professional with a legal background, it's really what I've really learned over my time um, in this space is how to balance um, risk and, but also, um, you know, trying to find opportunity and understanding that is sort of key to execution uh, in a lot of investments in the in the private markets. But but I'm sure it applies uh, to all types of of investments in finance. So when did you first learn about the secondary space? So um, me personally, um, I think I first learned about it as I mentioned with. Um, when, when, when I saw that term sheet from uh, Jeff and Brendan, and and really that's what always got me interested in it. It just seemed like a really interesting place to play. Um, I could I could go on for a lot of reasons about why it's an interesting place to invest. But that's not the point of this podcast. But but I thought um, why it's interesting was because there's a story behind all of our all of our investments. There's always a story when you're doing a new investment, but this is a story that can be told by the manager of the GP that we're kind of doing a GP-led secondary with. And that's really how I learned about the business was in the GP side. Um, and I think that's really interesting because all of private markets investing is about private information. So being able to invest in an opportunity where a manager or sponsor has already been executing um, these assets for a period of time, you're just like, there's, there's so much here to work with and you can, you can really get more certainty on your investment thesis. And that's kind of why we like this space. And I think, um, you know, when I joined StepStone and, um, um, started to learn, you know, obviously more about my partners and, and what they did and how they thought when I'd be out on the road, um, talking to people about the, the, uh, the firm, I'd say, hey, I'm I'm new to the firm. I just joined within the last year, but I can tell you, I've spent so much time now sitting on our investment committee and listening to my. I wasn't a partner then, but listening to my partners speak about the the investments and the way they talk about them, the way we think about the investments. I thought was um, as good as anybody uh, in real estate investment management, but it was also unique because we were, you know, trying to operate with as much inside information because we were providing capital these managers already own on their assets. Um, so that's kind of, you know, what got me excited about the deal, about the strategy. And it's, uh, you know, I think it was probably over 10, 10 years ago that I, I first kind of heard about Brendan and Jeff and, and Josh. Uh, so it's it's been exciting to, to grow the business with them. So you're a partner now. What is your, what do you do day to day partner stuff? <laughs> yeah, I do. I do a lot of partner stuff. Um, <laughs> so yeah, um, me too. Me and Lisa do the same thing, actually. Love partner I, stuff. I do. Um, you know the 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 the, the fun thing about um, working at Stepstone. One of the fun things about working at Stepstone, working in this space, um, is that we do a lot of different things. Um, we you know we allocate to fund managers. We do co investments. We do secondaries. And we raise money from investors. So I'm really able to leverage my skill set 
by focusing on sourcing. I do a lot of uh, focus on sourcing uh, GP-led secondaries and, and co-investments to some degree. A lot of times, you know, you, you're speaking to someone and, and there's a deal, but we're not sure what bucket it falls in. So it's really about a deal sourcing. How do you uh, source them? Are you just out in the market talking to owners or like? Yeah, so so we we are um, we're definitely out in the market like any other investor group. Uh, we all have our own networks. I, I'd say we're as well networked as anybody else because we built the team with a lot of different backgrounds. So I, that was that was intentional. Um, but really, how we're able to source is through our GP network, which um, you know we're one of um, we're one of the larger uh, kind of allocators in the real estate space for for primary commitments. Uh, so we're just engaged with the manager community uh, in a very, I think, distinct way from from other groups. Um, and because of that, we're just having so many meetings with managers, uh, and we leverage our, we have an internal, uh, database program, um, that, that we use and both some of our clients use as well, where we manage all of our information. So, you know, we're meeting with these managers now, um, we meet all of, we meet globally, Asia, Europe, and U S, um, we cover different people cover managers by different set, you know, different sectors. Um, there's some folks on our team that are much more focused on um, uh, ad- the advisory side of our business and working directly with our advisory clients. But we all are meeting with managers all the time. It's really our business and we're collecting information and we're engaging with them in a lot of different ways. You know, we're, we're allocating to their funds. We speak about co-investments. We speak about recaps and secondaries and um, we're, uh, you know, we're just, we're just in the flow of information, um, which is sort of the, you know, sort of the, uh, impo- this sort of the very important part of being at StepStone, which is information sharing and being in that flow of information. And so, you know, we can leverage our time better speaking to the right people about opportunities. And then when we find opportunities, we have great um, networks of diligence within our own GP network, either just, you know, who we're speaking to generally our best relationships, our deepest relationships, groups we've committed capital to, groups we're thinking about committing capital to. Um, and we are always doing things where um, we're fo- the focus is on the manager. So we're not disintermediating managers from opportunities or disintermediating intermediating the private equity, real est- private equity real estate community from opportunities. We're trying to be capital supportive of the manager community. And because of that, we're able, you know, managers will share their data with us. So it's a symbiotic relationship. So it all fits together. It's not just, that's great. I mean, they're all kind of working with, or at least different groups are working together. So the young folks that join your company, mm-hmm. is the is the talent kind of, the young resources, are they shared? Or would somebody immediately graduate from college or business school and go directly into secondaries or directly into direct, you know, yeah. where do they go? So we have on the junior side of our business, um, the junior analyst pool, um, typically, you know, there's different, we have different offices. We have an office, uh, in Cleveland, uh, San Francisco, London, and New York, where there's the, you know, the, uh, bulk of the, um, uh, real estate folks that sit in Stepstone on the investment side. And they, um, uh, the junior people in those offices are typically, they're not always only working with the folks in those offices, but you can imagine they're being mentored by the folks in those offices. So some folks are, are um, junior folks are more focused on the uh, 
the um, sorry the uh, the what we call the advisory side of our business, and then other folks are more focused on the active uh, investing side of our business. Now, the um, we you, junior folks spend time on both types of deals um, because you know when we're underwriting co investment or secondary, there's a manager component to that underwriting. So. You know, while the senior people who spend more of their time on advisory are probably not interacting on that deal, the junior people are. Um, and then, same on a fund. Uh, you know, on a fund underwriting, there may be co investments we've already done with that group. So mm. the junior person on that deal may be, may participate in the fund underwriting. That that's kind of that how we cross pollinate yeah. between between the two groups. There's a different skill set, obviously, um, underwriting a manager and underwriting a direct investment. So right. the backgrounds of folks are a little bit different. Um, but our goal as an organization is to give people the broadest level of exposure. You know, kind of within the asset class, I'd say we definitely hire folks for real estate and the private equity team hires people for, for private equity, things like that. Awesome. Well, I know you're in Florida, so it's probably pretty warm out, but are you ready to get really hot? On the hot seat, I am. The hot seat is sponsored by KK Reset. KK Reset is an HR management and outsourcing consulting firm that specializes in helping organizations to reset their culture, structure, and path. They do this through services which include comprehensive consultation to identify gaps and opportunities for corporate training programs, HR services, and career mapping services. They've collaborated with nonprofit startups and academic organizations to protect them from liabilities, reduce turnover, and preserve their brands. They have also collaborated with a number of my clients on the real estate front who are not large enough to have their own in-house HR program. So. They outsource it to KK Reset. KK Reset comes in, maybe sits on site a couple of days a week and provides you know everything you need from an HR perspective for your, for your firm. So it's a great uh, resource for those shops who just maybe it doesn't make sense for them to have in-house HR function. Um, so please check them out at kkreset.com. K-K-R-E-S-E-T.com. Crank your AC up, Alex. <laughs> Crank it up and tell us your favorite book or podcast. Or one that you'd recommend for folks to listen to. Okay. Um, well, I can give you a favorite book and and a really good podcast. I'm a bit of a history uh, buff, history major in college. Love, love history, love great stories. Um, I think a great book um, would be uh, Empires of Light. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. it, it is about the... Um, War of the Currents between uh, Edison and Westinghouse in the oh. late 19th century. Uh, it's a such a fantastic story that they made a movie about it called The Current Wars with Benedict Cumberbatch and Michael Shannon, um, huh. which is, I think, a sleeper. Uh, there's a whole backstory to it that I won't go into now, but definitely recommend it after you read the book. Um, I think it's a great story about how we do big, um, big things here in America. And, um, you know, my belief in electricity is that it's the number one thing that changes a person's life. When folks from the third world get get their areas electrified, it just completely changes their life and we can't really live without it. Um, and so the story of how it kind of came to be as, as a commercial business is quite interesting. Um, and so that's that's my book recommendation. I'm going to get that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mark that down. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fantastic. Um, really interesting. 
my podcast um, is another kind of history, kind of a history story. It's a podcast called um, Radioactive. It's a podcast about uh, Reverend Charles Coughlin, who was a massive demagogue in the 1930s during a period of massive disruption, both in the economy as well as media. So he mm-hmm. was the first media demagogue of modern the modern world. Um, there's a lot that's been said about him, but I think what's really interesting about this podcast is it uses his medium, which was radio, to tell his story versus a book. And hearing his voice um, and what the way he talked and how he rose to power uh, and his ultimate uh, downfall, which was uh, quite important because he, he wanted to do some pretty – there were some pretty challenging things that he wanted to do as a person and his beliefs weren't, weren't necessarily um, great is, is a fascinating story to listen to in a podcast form because the, 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 all this radio footage is available and you can kind of hear the primary source, which is, you know, oftentimes the most interesting way to, to hear about, hear about, oh, I love about that. something. That's a great one. Yeah. I never heard of that one. Yeah. Me neither. Sounds fascinating. Yeah. Tablet, tablet magazine uh, is the sponsor for anyone who wants to find it. Um, but it's, it was really good. I'm going to listen to that. All right. Uh, question number two, what is, or has been your most memorable deal? Um, well, throughout my career, <laughs> I'd say it's that first deal as a lawyer. Um, still, still the, the, uh, the most memorable, uh, deal for, for, for how much work I put into it and putting all the pieces together. Um, there's nothing like kind of your, it was kind of like my first deal and understanding how everything comes together and how a deal really happens. Like actually like one group um, buys another group's real estate and it all needs to be financed and there needs to be assumptions. And there's all this, like actually how a thing, how something works, um, was by far the most, uh, memorable deal, uh, I did, um, just from execution. I mean, there's been a lot of great wins as an investment professional, um, but instead of talking about wins and losses as an investment professional, I think it's more interesting to talk about deal execution as a lawyer. Were you, uh, did you get to see the assets ever when it became like uh, one more of the than, assets, more than paper? One of the assets is next to my favorite pizza shop down here in, in Delray beach. So, uh, I visit nice. it frequently. <laughs> That's the best part about real estate is that it's, it actually exists and you can visit it and walk through it and it's, Sort of, I, I mean, that's actually exactly why I got, you know, I was, I was, I started my career, it was really more generic private investment funds. And I just, as a junior person, I got, I, I really got enamored with the, um, the tangibility of real estate, um, and, and trying to understand companies. I didn't come from a family of finance or anything like that. So trying to understand these companies and how they worked was, was a little bit over my head at that point, but I could totally understand real estate and I could, and I really enjoy real estate and enjoy places and, and um, thinking about, you know, places. So, so real estate was always easier for me to understand as an investment um, vehicle. Yeah, me too. That's uh, when I was doing that l- lawyer stuff. I was in the, in the real estate group and I would see these names on these documents. And uh, one of them was, uh, I remember it was Whole Foods, I believe. And I'd never even heard of, Whole, heard of Whole Foods at the time. And I believe, then I walked down to the one downtown in Manhattan. I was like, oh, yeah. I think I worked on that deal. I was like, holy smokes, like it's actually real. You know what I mean? It wasn't just like paper. That was like transformative. Yeah. Um, agreed. 
such a fun thing. So when you hire people on your team, is there anything specific that you look for? Do you have a, a question that you kind of use to vet your folks? So I look for um, probably a lot of things the same people look for. You know, um, you want to hire passionate people. You want to hire people who are good listeners, um, who are good in teams, um, who are always willing to learn. Those are basics. I think what's really interesting um, where you can find someone who, um, who who's more, you know, punches above their weight and sort of understanding, you know, what's going on is really when you ask somebody um, questions about or ask them why they want to be at StepStone or try to understand StepStone. And there's at StepStone, it's not the easiest business to understand. There's not that many businesses out there just like StepStone. So it takes a certain level of sophistication to understand what you're signing up for. Um, and so the folks that have, you know, they by the time someone's chatting with me, They've already been through screening, right? So these are already strong people, but the people who've actually done the research and given some real thought to how they fit into the puzzle is probably the most important thing because it what that means to me is they're always doing that type of analysis on any type of opportunity. Um, oftentimes people are thinking about, and it's fine, they're thinking about themselves and like they want to move ahead and it's like, go, 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 go. Um, but the real way to win is the broader picture and how you fit into the broader picture. And so someone who's already thinking about that, just even like the first conversation, it's that's what opens the door to a much more relaxed interview with me um, than, you know, sort of just talking about their deals, or talking about themselves, um, because that's that's really what that's really shows that, that they're thinking about it and they'll be th- thoughtful like that going forward. Well, anyone who's going to interview with Alex who's listening to this, bring that up. Do your do your homework, or else he's going to grill you. Uh, it won't be comfortable. Just reference him in. It, Tell him come listen. It won't be relaxed. That's for sure. Uh, now, this is the Real Estate Impact Podcast. Which mentors have had the most impact upon your career? Sure. Um, well, I've had a uh, I had a uh, really strong mentor at. Um, uh, at Credit Suisse and uh, Grosvenor, um, uh, a man by the name of Dave Russell, who I still stay in touch with. And, um, you know, just someone who came from a very similar background professionally. He was a practicing lawyer before he started uh, at CFIG. He's one of the founders of the business, but spent a lot of time on business development and early days writing RFPs, responding to questions, doing a lot of things that I did. Um, so, you know, just, he was a really helpful resource when I moved from being a lawyer at a firm to a new shop on sort of, you know, understanding the firm, understanding what to do, how things work, um, and continue to rely on him for advice to this day, still a good friend, um, and someone who, you know, really kind of can cut through it and give you, give you the real answer. So I think that's been the key. Uh, and, you know, it was, it, it's always hard to find that right mentor, especially early in your career. Um, and, and, you know, oftentimes it's someone like Dave and it was just, it was just the right fit, uh, for the right time. Um, where's Dave now? Uh, Dave, uh, is, uh, based in South Carolina now he's, uh, okay. he's, um, uh, I don't know if he's fully retired, but he's, you know, he's moved on from, from Grosvenor and, uh, 
um, you know, uh, another his, his history buff as well. Uh, so we, so we have that in common. Um, but yeah, great guy. Awesome. Well, here's another question that I, I've, I don't think I, I put on our little prep sheet there and I've never asked it before. Uh -oh. All right. So if it, if we don't, if we don't have a, if we don't have a, uh, whatever, we can always cut it out. You know, we, so Lisa and I are recruiters in the, in this space for 20 plus years or whatever. Do you have any questions for us? I never ask people that. I guess maybe one question I have about uh, about recruiting for you guys is um, what is the most exciting thing about being a recruiter? You know, what what gets you excited day to day? Is it finding candidates? It, is it seeing someone successful in a new role? Like what what is it about being a recruiter that, you know, kind of gets you going? Because, you know, in, on, for, for my role, you know, it's it's the most exciting things are finding the new deal and kind of seeing that this is something that could really work or, or finding a new client that we're going to have a great relationship together or, you know, at selling or, you know, ex exiting an investment. But, but what is it in the, um, what is in the recruiting field that gets you guys excited? Go ahead, Lisa. So I started my career as a CPA. I worked at KPMG and when I found out that being a recruiter was a job, that was, I was immediately, I was like, wait a minute, I could actually do this and get to talk to people and help them shape their companies and help people shape their careers. I think it's interesting because I wake up every day and I just love what I do and I feel so thankful to do it. And I always, I like to liken it to um, like Jerry Maguire. Did you, did you watch that movie? Yes. Like, I like to feel like my clients, like, you know, I, I have a joke with one of them, like the ambassador of Quan, but this feeling that like, you know what, we've got you and we're going to work together and we're going to figure out what is your talent pool need to look like? What do, what, what do the people on the, in the company have right now that maybe can be expanded, helping people to pull out leadership skills and training and development. And I don't know, I just find that helping people to build companies is just the most exciting thing. And it's a it's a well-known secret because I think a lot of people don't know that being an executive recruiter really plays into yeah. the entire organization. That and makes sense. That makes sense. I think you're right. The general public doesn't know that. It's the people who hire you guys as recruiters really know the value of finding new talent and how hard it is. Yeah. So that's when a good We have clients that come to us and, and hire us and it's, they just rely on us. I mean, and we get to help shape their company and grow, like bring it to like an, an example is like a family office. Who's like, doesn't know how to get to that next level and get more institutional. And then we show them like how to do it. And like part of that process is they're hiring someone in that process, but there's, right. you know, that's 10% of it. You know, it's like, it's the other 90% like that we get to help shape their entire, like their trajectory going forward. And, you know, then we become, yeah, we become part of that company um, going forward yeah. in a way, you know, so. A trusted advisor of that company to help shape their business. Yeah, no, I, I I'm sure I it's similar to your, your, yeah. your, uh, yeah. your, your um, job too. It is. And, and um, my wife is actually head of talent management at, at Poland Capital here in Boca. Ah, okay, cool. uh, so we're, um, not on the recruiting side, but on the in-house side, uh, we spent a lot of time talking about that. So, um, 
kind of interested. I mean, it was interesting to hear what gets you guys excited because she obviously deals with a lot of folks on your side of the business day to day. Um, and uh, just kind of interested to understand that. Well, if she ever wants to trade war stories, have her give me a holler. Will do. Will do. Well, Alex, it was great having you on the podcast. Great to get to know you better. And we look forward to seeing you on the webinar at the end of the month. Sounds good. Looking forward to it, guys. Should be a great discussion. 